Acts 2. Acts 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire home where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. <coughs> now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And as this sound, the multitude, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and the visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I want to say a quick thank you to uh, everyone who helped with our um, Presbytery meeting this week. So some of you may not even be aware that that happened, but this week we hosted uh, a quarterly meeting for the pastors and elders in the state of Arizona, and a number of you helped with that. A number of you were praying for that week, and it was a long day of meetings, um, but it was uh, really good. So it was an honor, too. Near our second anniversary, this is the first time we've ever hosted Presbytery, so it's like we're, we're growing up, you know? It's fun. Um, we're going to turn our attention to God's Word, this famous passage on the day of Pentecost, as we continue in our series in the book of Acts. And before we dive in, let's ask for the Holy Spirit's help, even as we see how He appeared to the apostles. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come and ask for you to be here, to fill us with yourself. Holy Spirit, 
you have not gone away. Your power and your might and your access that you give us is still here. The church is yours, filled with you. And so I pray that you would bring power and your might to animate our beings. That we would be filled with a new energy and a new desire. This would be a new day of the pouring of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a a few years ago, I was visiting a used bookstore, and I came across a book by Ernest Hemingway that I'd never uh, seen before. It was called A Movable Feast, written by Ernest Hemingway. It's a memoir, and it's uh, really a fascinating little book. I thought I'd read everything uh, by Hemingway, but I was surprised to find this, and I found out later that this book was published uh, posthumously. It was after his death. Um, his literary agents and his, his fourth wife uh, published this book, A Movable Feast, and it's a memoir um, about his time in the 1920s in Paris. He lived there as a young man before he was a well-known uh, writer. And it's a fascinating little book. I can see why it was published after his death, because it has a lot of gossip in it. Um, it's a memoir about how he interacted with all these people that were more famous than him at the time, like Gertrude Stein and Ezra Pound and F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, who wrote The Great Gatsby. And he doesn't always tell the most flattering stories about his interactions with them. Uh, so it was published after his death. But the reason why it caught my eye is that title, a movable feast. If you're not aware of that term, it's actually a, it's a church term. It's a sacred term. A movable feast um, refers to the old Catholic idea or the, just an old church idea of a holy day that is not on a fixed uh, pattern. So uh, the holy days of the church, you can think about Christmas. Christmas is not a movable feast because Christmas is always on December 25th, right? And Christmas Eve is always on December 24th. But Easter, for instance, is a movable feast. It changes what day uh, it appears on that we celebrate. So it's a movable feast. The book title came from a play on words from a letter that he wrote. This is Hemingway again, who wrote to his friend, about his time, what the book is about his time in Paris. And this is what he says about his time in Paris. If you're lucky enough to have lived in Paris as a young man, then wherever you go for the rest of your life, it stays with you. For Paris is a movable feast. Paris is a movable feast. You see, he's doing a play on words there. He's saying, uh, Paris has gone with me. Wherever I have gone. Paris was a time in my life that I experienced certain things. It was a historical time in the 1920s. He lived there. But the significance of Paris for Hemingway cannot be kept to the time that he was there. Paris, he says, lives in my writing. It lives in my life. It has stayed with me. It was a unique event but it stayed with me. Well, today we are looking at 
the Feast of Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, where the Spirit of God was poured out on the church. And Pentecost is, in the historical and traditional sense, a movable feast. It is. It changes every year because it's always 50 days after Easter. And if Easter is a movable feast, well, then so is Pentecost. This year it will be on May 19th, so we'll celebrate Pentecost in just a few months. But the next year after that, it's on June 8th. So it's a movable feast in the historic sense. But what I want to share, share with you this morning is that I also think it's a movable feast in the Hemingway sense. Meaning, the significance of Pentecost cannot be kept in church history. The significance of this day cannot be just located historically, though it is located historically, and it is something that we need to see happened, and is not necessarily a repeated event, it still stays with us. Because the same Spirit that was poured out is the same Spirit that animates this church and every apostolic church. This is our founding. This is our passage. This is our day. This is Ascension, Church's day to celebrate what God did at Pentecost. Well, the passage, as it's uh, been read to us, really falls into two neat categories. We want to understand it. The first part of the passage answers the question, what happened? And then the second part of the passage answers, what does it mean? In fact, that's their literal question, those who experienced that day. What does this mean? Let's ask those two questions as well. What happened and what does it mean? First, what happened? Look with me in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rush, rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Who are these people? This is the 120 people of the proto-church we talked about last week. The apostles gathered after the ascension of God, ascension of Christ into heaven, and about 120 people, all the women and, and the apostles and about a hundred other people are gathered here. And it says the day of Pentecost arrived. So uh, the Pentecost that we celebrate was already a thing. It, it was something that they were celebrating already, the day of Pentecost. So what does that mean? Well, this is the Greek term for the Feast of Weeks. Um, so every year, the uh, followers of Yahweh, the Israelites, were required to come three times to celebrate different feasts. And one of those feasts was the Feast of Weeks. And it was 50 days after the Feast of the First Fruits. So they would have the Feast of the First Fruits, and then 50 days later, that was like the beginning of the harvest. Uh, both of these are harvest festivals. And then 50 days later, there would be the Feast of Weeks, where there would be the end of the harvest, and there would be another feast. Well, by this time, the you know, the world had been Hellenized. There was Greek culture everywhere. And so the Greek word Pentecost, which just means 50th, was being used by some Greek speakers to say this is the Feast of Weeks. This is what we're celebrating today. And so it was already called Pentecost. But this was an unusual Pentecost. 
An unusual harvest festival because three miraculous things happened. There was an unusual sound, an unusual sight, and an unusual speech. It was a sound like wind, a sight like fire, and a speech in many languages. And there's something unusual about each one of those, which points to its miraculous character. For instance, the sound, it's a sound like wind, but it doesn't say that they felt the wind. It was just a sound like a whirring wind, a wind that wasn't felt. Tongues, like as of fire, appear over their heads. So it looked like fire. We can picture orange and red licking flames, but the fire wasn't felt. There was no fire. And then the speech. Lots of different languages, lots of different tongues are spoken, but the unusual thing is this. It's all spoken by Galileans. People who shouldn't know those languages, though they are known languages because people recognize their own speech, but they don't recognize the people who are saying it. They say these are Galileans who are speaking like this, and Galileans were known for their country bumpkin accents, okay? This is in northern Israel uh, where, where Galilee is. And, you know, if you remember the story of when Peter betrayed Christ uh, and he denied him three times, remember the, the girl who talked to him said, you sound like a Galilean. This was provincial. This was a, like a country dialect. This was not, in other words, an elevated speech. These are Galileans and they're speaking. It was unusual. And it's almost like Luke here who's writing this is saying to us, don't try to find a natural explanation for this. <laughs> there was a sound like wind. There was a sight like fire. And there were tongues, but they were done, spoken by those who wouldn't know them. We should expect the wind and the fire here because those are two biblical images of the Holy Spirit. Even in the Old Testament, the word for wind and spirit are the same word. It's the how you would say a wind comes through, you would say a breath or a, a spirit. Ezekiel had spoken about this moment or a similar moment where the, the wind of God comes or the Spirit of God comes and breathes on those valley of the dry bones. The fire also is significant. In the Old Testament, it always signified the presence of God Himself, the burning bush of Moses, the pillar of fire that followed around the Israelites to let them know God is near. The fire that was on Mount Sinai as the law was given, the fire and the wind or the Spirit come together. And John the Baptist said that that's what would happen after Christ came. He says, I baptize you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Looking forward to this very time. What about the speeches? Well, these people are in Jerusalem. As I said, it's the Feast of Weeks. And they're coming from all over the place. Look at verse 5 with me. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, that doesn't make sense if you think about it for a second. Jews from every nation. What's happened? Well, something historically has happened called the diaspora, where the Jews have spread out all over the place. Verse 6, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. The Jews had spread out 
over the Mediterranean, spread out over Africa and Asia. And they were coming back for the Feast of Weeks, for the day of Pentecost. And I love how Luke, I won't reread all these 15 different regions that were read so well earlier. 15 different regions. He lists them out. It's almost like he's thinking of every possible direction that the Jews went. Really, there's five different areas. There's the area around the Caspian Sea, Asia Minor. That's the second grouping. So he's got little groupings. North Africa, that's Egypt and Libya that he mentions. Rome. Then he talks about the Cretans and the Arabians. So he's moving roughly from east to west. It's like he's thinking about all these different areas. And he says they heard their own languages. So the tongues that were spoken this day were not ecstatic speech. They were not just gibberish words. They were known languages. That's what Luke says happened. That's what happened. This supernatural event. A sound, a sight, and speeches. All of them, as Luke describes them here, are supernatural. But not everyone agrees in that day or today with what happened. Not everyone agrees what Luke, with what Luke says here happened that day. Of course, many people will question whether this event ever happened in our day. But it's important to see that many people that day questioned what was happening. As you see the response in verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. There were those, in other words, who had questions with belief. And at the same time, there were those who looked at the day of Pentecost and made a joke. That day. The Bible is very honest about this kind of thing. And it challenges those of us Christians who, who say, you know, my, my faith would be so much stronger, right? If I, was, if I was living during Bible times, if I had just been around when Jesus was there, if I had just experienced the miracles that it tells us about, then my faith would be stronger. Not necessarily. Because there were some who looked at this that day and said, these these guys are drunk. They didn't see what was happening. They didn't experience it. The Bible is very honest about this. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 28, just before Jesus gives the great commission, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them. He, before he gives that commission, he's appearing to the crowds, the resurrected Jesus. This is Matthew's account of the resurrection in Matthew 28. And Matthew says in that passage, some worshipped him and others doubted. Looking right at the resurrected Jesus. Some worshipped him and some doubted while they were looking at him. And you can imagine the kind of excuses. Well, it looks like him, but I'm not sure it's the same person. Um, maybe he never died. Like People have doubts even while they look at him. It's not necessarily the case that being there, we could all agree what happened. 
This is the spiritual dimension. This is the life that we're called into, that God has called each one of us and and given us His Spirit, makes you alive towards Him to, to see the same historical events and to believe. It comes from Him, not from our ability to judge a situation. And it might have been the case that had you have been there, the moment would have passed you by and you would have been tempted to make a joke. The question now is, is the Spirit of God touching you, moving in you to believe that what happened here is the way that Luke said it happened? Because the, the same Spirit is alive. Do you believe that the Spirit came? That He fulfilled all of these things and He poured Himself out on the church? What happened here? What do you believe? There's a second question. What does it mean? What does it mean? That's their question in verse 12. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And that's another question that people, even believers, sincere believers, will disagree about. What does it mean? In particular, there's a lot of argumentation about, is Pentecost, this day, a repeatable event, or is it a redemptive historical event? In other words, when we come together on a Sunday, should we expect that the Spirit of God might influence, we might hear some things, that we might, uh, we might expect some different tongues being spoken, that we would expect the Spirit of God to move in these miraculous ways? Should we be praying that we would see visions like they saw this day? That we should hear these sights and or hear these sounds and see these sights? Or, on the other hand, is it merely a redemptive historical event? And what's meant by that is this. We don't expect Jesus to be crucified again. We don't expect His resurrection to happen again. Those are historical events. That's part of the story of redemption. Is the pouring out of the Spirit something that just happened here and here only? That's part of our story, but it's something that happened only in the past. And I think there are dangers in either one of these extremes. That's why I labor to say, I think this is a movable feast. In the Hemingway sense, it was a historical event. It happened. And in that sense, it is unrepeatable. We should not bind the Spirit of God to say, this is exactly how you should pour yourself out. This is exactly how revival should break out. This is exactly the tongues that we should speak. We should not bind the Holy Spirit to do that. However, we cannot and should not say that God does not pour out His Spirit in unique ways in the church. So we must be careful not to either control the Spirit or to quench the Spirit because this is the same Spirit. And this is the same church that we are a part of, the apostolic church. And God can and does do things outside of our way of thinking. He is not to be controlled and He is not to be quenched. What does it mean? What does this event mean? Well, Peter addresses the crowd and tells them. Verse 14, 
standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, that is 9 a.m. If it wasn't the third hour of the day, maybe they would, no, I'm just kidding. Um, No, let's be reasonable. It's only 9 a.m. It's not what you think. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes from the prophet Joel. And what Peter says, what this means is that this is something new. Something new. There are new things. Not all new, but some things are new. There have been changes. Three that with our remaining time, I want to point out three new things that happened on the day of Pentecost. First of all, this is a new day. In fact, it's the last day. Look at the first part of Joel's prophecy here. And in the last days, it shall be. Jesus, with His death and resurrection and the coming of the Spirit, brings the final era of the world. The last days. And the final proof of those final days is the coming of the Holy Spirit as prophesied in the Scripture. This is a significant redemptive moment. This is a new day. This is one of those moments in the Bible where you say, there's something beyond this, before this and beyond this. Like the birth of Jesus, you know, we even date our calendars that way. This is one of those moments. It's a significant day in the scriptural, redemptive, historical sense in so many different ways. Let me just point out two of the new ways that this is a new day. This is a reversal of the Tower of Babel, and it is a fulfillment of the law given at Sinai. It's a reversal of Babel and the fulfillment of Sinai. It's the reversal of Babel. If you know the Old Testament story in Genesis chapter 11, at the height of human depravity, when when everyone had walked away from God and there was none righteous really on the earth, in the height of wickedness, man tried to build a tower to God, a tower of Babel. And God judged that act with the confusion of languages. And the many languages that were established Uh, The day of Babel were a sign of confusion and judgment. But here, now at Pentecost, the many languages of the world are now a sign of unity and gospel proclamation. God has redeemed Babel. At, At Babel, people try to ascend to God. But at Pentecost, heaven comes down. Babel is reversed. That's why it's significant. It's a new day. No longer are we under this curse of language. It's God has redeemed language. But it's also the fulfillment of Sinai. Because the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, I said it was a harvest festival. But very early on, there was another tradition that was developed that Pentecost was the day that we celebrate the giving of the law at Sinai. The Ten Commandments. And if you remember, when the Ten Commandments were given at Sinai, there were all these things there. There was fire, there was wind, and there was the tongue of God who spoke the commands. At Sinai, Moses ascended and brought down the law of God. 
at Pentecost, Christ ascended and brought down the Spirit of God. The Spirit and the the law are now both given to us for our own interpretation of the spiritual realities. We have now the Spirit and the law. And so it is fulfilled. Sinai is fulfilled. It is also a new day in the sense that the last days point to final realities, the realities of judgment and salvation. And here is where Peter quotes Joel. Look at verse 19 with me. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. These are signs of judgment of God. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What is Joel talking about? What is Peter talking about when he brings that prophecy here? You have to understand something about the way that prophecy works in the Bible. And it's, it's not an easy topic, but here's one thing to think about. This is an old illustration. I don't know who originally said this, but it's helpful. If you think about the Old Testament prophecies of God, how you understand them, you need to know that the way prophecy works is almost like viewing a mountain range from a distance. When you view a mountain range from a distance, you see the mountains and they seem like a singularity. These are the mountains. There's one thing in front of you. And that's the way the prophets saw when God spoke to them and they prophesied. They saw if it's a future thing that they prophesied about, they would see these mountains. But anyone who knows, who sees a mountain from a distance, goes close to one, knows that sometimes there's great distances between and among the mountains. And sometimes the mountains are connected in ways that you can't see originally. And so as you get closer and closer to the real thing, in other words, you see more and more of the depth, but there's still a unity and there's still also diversity. This is the way that the prophets work. And so when Joel is making this prophecy in the Old Testament, he's talking about a coming judgment day of God. He's talking about the locusts that are coming, to, that God is sending on the people of Israel because they have not obeyed him. And so his prophecy makes sense in his day because it's coming this day of God's judgment. And so why does Peter quote it here? Well, he sees a significance there. Is Peter now talking about maybe the crucifixion of Jesus? Because certainly that was a day when the sun was turned to darkness, for instance. Or is he he talking about another future event, perhaps the the destruction of the temple coming in A.D. 70, a later event where the Romans come in and sack Jerusalem, the, this day of destruction that the Bible frequently talks about. Is that the coming judgment day? Or is this some other kind of future judgment day, maybe the final throne room of God that Revelation talks about? And I would say in a sense, a general sense, yes to that. Because there are multiple fulfillments, and this is the way that prophecy works. But here's the main thing. Until the final day of the Lord, there will always be coming judgment and coming salvation. And you want the salvation. You get that by calling on the name of the Lord. That is always the way of salvation. It's always the way to call in the name of the Lord. It shall come to pass, verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
What does that mean? To call in the name of the Lord means you're not looking or depending on your own self. You're not saying, I can figure this out. I can save myself. You call outside of yourself to the Lord. You find your help in the one who made heaven and earth, and you trust in him. And what he says is that salvation is found in only one name. It's Jesus Christ. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, the Bible says. And so we call on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation in this day, this new day. There's a coming judgment and there is a coming salvation. We call on the name of the Lord, a new day. Number two, there is a new power. Verse 17, again, in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, what's new about this? Not the spirit. The spirit's been around since creation, before creation, eternity past. The spirit has always been. So what's new is not the spirit's power, but that it rests on all flesh. Even in the Old Testament story, we see the Spirit of God, it rests on individuals. Sometimes maybe King Saul, the Spirit of God would be on him, and then the Spirit of God would leave him. The prophets would say, I'm in the Spirit of the Lord, because the Spirit of God would rest on them. What's, not, what's new is not the power itself, but that the power rests on every individual of the church, all flesh. That's why... Even here, when it says the tongues of flame appeared over their heads, it says every one of them, not just the apostles. The Spirit of God is on every believer. What does that mean? It means so many things. It means every promise about the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures is yours. Every uh, understanding of what He does in and for you is yours. It means that you have the power, for instance, to bear fruit. Because there's the fruit of the Spirit that Galatians tells us about. It means also that you can have contentment and joy. The same things that the Bible says wine brings. In fact, wine and the Spirit are not just compared here in this passage where some people say these people are drunk. But think about Ephesians 5, verse 18 through 20. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a kind of way to live with the melody of God in your heart when you have the Spirit of God. It's powerful. The Spirit gives you boldness to enter the throne room of God. The Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God, that you have assurance. There is a new power. And finally, and relatedly, thirdly, there is a new access. A new access. Everyone has access to God. Verse 17, again, in the last days shall be, God declares that I will pour my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. There is a new access for everyone. There are, number one, no national 
distinctions. Whether you're Cap- Cappadocian or you're from Libya, you're from Egypt, or you're from Crete, or you're from Phoenix. All of us can hear the spirit of the truth. There is no more Jew or a Gentile, as Paul will say later. There is no national distinctions. Number two, there are no gender distinctions. I'm not saying there's no gender distinctions in every context. I'm talking about this context. Whether you're male or female, it says sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Paul will say later, there is no male or female in Christ. He's not erasing the biological difference. He's saying in relation to the gospel and the giving of the Spirit, there's no primacy anymore for any gender. The access is the same. The old... um, The old tabernacle and temple was divided into regions. There was the court of the men. There was the court of the women. There was the court of the Gentiles. And you would go to where you were appropriately put. That's no more. Even now, uh, you can't go, if you're a woman, to to the Wailing Wall. I mean, at least 13 or 14 years ago, when I was at the Wailing Wall, we left the women behind and we put on yarmulkes, the men did, and went to the wall because... They were not allowed. But there are no more gender distinctions as it relates to the Spirit. There are no more national distinctions. There are no more social distinctions. He says, even all my male servants and female servants. It's not just the prophets and the priests and the kings and the important people that are in the Bible that get to prophesy. All do. All will prophesy. Now, don't get hung up on that word. It doesn't mean that you have to tell the future. In fact, there is no evidence that that's what they're doing here. He's saying this event applies to this prophecy, and he's saying all these people are prophesying. Well, what are they doing? Verse 11 says, in their own tongues, they're they're telling the mighty works of God. They're not saying anything about the future. They're saying this is what God has done. The mighty works of God. They're probably talking about the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Or they're talking about the parting of the Red Sea. All the things that God has done. The mighty works of God. And no person is excluded from doing that now. Jeremiah saw this day. Jeremiah 31. In that day, no one, you won't say, no one will teach you. Know the Lord. For in that day, Everyone will know the Lord from the least of these to the greatest of these. Or how about the Apostle John in First John where he says, you have received the anointing, so you don't need anyone to teach you. Is he saying that you don't need teachers or preachers anymore? I hope not. I like this job. <laughs> what does he mean? Of course, the Bible's full of commands about preaching and teaching as being important and necessary for the building of the body of Christ, he's, saying, he's not saying there's no, there's no necessity to the, the physical teaching of it. He's saying you don't need a third party to get access to God. You don't need to be a prophet to hear the Lord. You don't need to be a priest to confess your sins to the Lord. You can go to the Word yourself. You can have access to the Father Himself because, He says, of the anointing, the Holy Spirit. This is a new day. It's a new power, and it is a new access. Friends, 
since we live in the last day? The question that I've been asking myself that I want to ask you, it's a challenging question. What are you doing with your power and your access? Because you're included in all flesh. The Spirit of God has been poured out on you. And what Hemingway thought about Paris... Paris is in my bones. Paris is in my writing. I'll never forget Paris. Paris is mine. I may have left it, but it's never left me. We may have left the day of Pentecost, historically speaking, but Pentecost has not left us. The same Spirit that is poured out here that creates the last days is the Spirit that empowers our faith, that gives us access to God. From the greatest to the least, you have the power and you have the access to God by the Spirit. That means that you can overcome certain sins. You have that power. It's the power of sanctification that has been given to you by the Spirit. You have the ability to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Because the Spirit of God has been poured into your life. You can share your faith with power. You can give a reason for the hope that is within you because you are not just saying something with your own words, but the Spirit of God indwells you. You can prophesy. Say the mighty works of God. You have access. You can come into the throne room of God whenever you want. You can ask for the Spirit to pray for you. You don't know what to pray. The Bible says can pray to the Spirit, and the Spirit will groan for you with words that you couldn't come up with. We have power, and we have access, and we live in the last days because the same Spirit that was poured out here at Pentecost is the Spirit that fills this church, who every true believer, everyone who's called on the name of the Lord for salvation, now has the power and the access that the Spirit has granted. What are we doing with our power and our access? Let's pray.